John chapter 1, verse 35. And as you turn in there, let me bring you up to speed. Much like the other Gospels, John is a photo album, so to speak, of different pieces and parts of Jesus' life and ministry and the things that we need to know about him and those surrounding him. And it has been so much to the church throughout all of history. Let me say that tonight's passage is somewhat of a continuation of what we saw last week. If you didn't get to hear that, I would encourage you to jump on the podcast and listen. We talked about the messenger, John the Baptist. He makes a cameo appearance tonight. And then also the message. And that message also gets expounded as well. Let me also say this. This passage is somewhat different than what we saw last week. Last week, two points, easy to lay our heads around. Uh, This, not so much. In fact, uh, I think every commentary I looked at had some difference of opinion on one or many parts of this passage. So after about the fifth one, I was like, well, goodness, if they can't figure it out, hmm, there's no hope for me. I'll just do the best I can. But the Lord has helped us, and thankfully on anything with what we might disagree with here, I think those differences would be small. But I also want to point out that unlike last week, when I had two points, tonight I have seven, so we better get to work. Pick it up in verse 35. He says, the next day again, so this is the contiguity from what we saw last week to what we see tonight. John, John the Baptist here, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So let's try to picture this here. I don't know if they were at the uh, proverbial water cooler in that day or whatever, but John is chopping it up with a couple of his guys there. Jesus comes by, and he makes this proclamation that was so important last week. The Lamb of God. And so, verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And that word, it's a verb, of course, means to follow as a disciple. And it's unclear here if they, at this exact moment, went out once for all, all Jesus all the time at this point, or if that occurred maybe a little bit in stages. But what is very clear is that is certainly what ended up happening. They left the ministry of John the Baptist, and began to follow Jesus. And therein lies our first principle, and that is that this is another great example of the humility and the clarity of John the Baptist. Now, I won't burn too much gasoline on that tonight. We talked about that at length last week. But again, what a profound example of someone who gets it, who understands that the purpose of his life is to shine the spotlight on Jesus. And we would be well served to go and do likewise in our lives. In addition, he is another example of someone who really understands his place in the divine pecking order. That he has gifts and talents and all those things. But at the end of the day, we're not going to be singing John the Baptist praises for 10,000 years in heaven. It's going to be the Lord Jesus. And so he was happy to point out again who Jesus was. And to graciously let his disciples, which ultimately were Jesus's anyway, weren't they? Follow after this Jesus. Now let me also point out a secondary thing here as well. That when we see Jesus tell us to do something, 
We need to do it. Okay? Now, we will talk more about this, and he says more clearly in just a bit, follow me. But this whole idea here that they heard the proclamation, they connected the dots, and they picked up and went after Jesus surely is exemplary for us as well. Now, what is it that Jesus has told us to do? Well, there's a little book. It's very popular. It's called the Bible. And from cover to cover, it tells us what Jesus wants us to do. Now, we can't distill everything down tonight, but that's part of why reading the Scripture is so important. Because I know it's not much of an issue in this church, but in other ministries of which I've been a part, I was constantly inundated with the question, I just don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know what God wants me to do. And there was usually a connection between how much this person standing in front of me with no clue what God wants them to do, how much they do or don't read their Bible and their ability to pick up on what God wants them to do. Because here's what's interesting. There are so many things that God has directly already revealed to us that he wants us to do and not do. Now, are there specific callings? You better believe it. Can God And does God give us specific direction in many examples and instances? You better believe it. But on so many things, God has already spoken and given us direction. So let's start with those things. And we need to ask ourselves this kind of question tonight. Is there anything that God has told me to do that I'm not doing? That I can take a page out of their playbook tonight and say, you know what? By example, I need to get to work in this particular area. By converse, is there anything that we're into that we know God doesn't want us to do? Well, we can consider this passage tonight as somewhat of a cease and desist letter to step away from that nonsense. The immediacy with which they heard and went is a helpful gospel challenge to us tonight. So when Jesus tells us to do something, let's do it. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, For it was about the 10th hour. Now, I want to point out just the the, the nature here of the 10th hour. This shows us the reality of the story. This is not made up. This is actual, factual history. And it was important enough to include that minor detail to reinforce the historical veracity of what we're looking at. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he found, he first found his own brother, Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, if this was anybody other than Jesus, I think we could legitimately look at this and be like, Who does this guy think he is? I mean, he just brought his friend up, and now he's like, that's not your name. This is your name. Somebody does that at the office? That's like you contact HR for that kind of weirdness, right? But since this is Jesus, this shows us something profound and important. And therein lies our next principle. 
And that is that Jesus is the Messiah that they and we have been looking for. So this concept here of the Messiah, it is a transliteration of the Hebrew or Aramaic verbal adjective that means anointed one. It comes from a verb that means to anoint someone. It's an action of consecrating that person to a particular office or function. It was first applied to the king of Israel all the way back in 1 Samuel 16. High priest was involved with that, and then eventually it came to point forward to the prophesied coming one, the anointed one, the Messiah. Now, also the word here, because you see this in parentheses there, which means Christ, that's a Greek word, another verbal adjective, comes from a verb also meaning to anoint. And so he is coupling both of these together, and he is showing us something important here, that this is who they had been longing for. I don't know if there's any Star Wars fans out there tonight, but there's the little thing in all those movies with the Jedi mind trick where, who is it, Obi-Wan, who says these are not the droids that you're looking for? Well, this is the droid that they were looking for. This is the long-awaited Messiah that they had been praying for, that they had been hoping for, that they knew that God would one day fulfill his promise and send, and here he is. Now, this notion here of finding what they had been looking for, let's talk about that. Every one of us rolled in here tonight looking for something. Now, some of us rolled in here tonight, you may not even realize this, but you've been looking for meaning. You've been looking for lasting peace, something that is beyond what this world has to offer. You've been looking for freedom from guilt. Friends, Jesus is who you've been looking for. Just like they found the Messiah that day, the Messiah is here available to you tonight. Whether you realize it or not, Jesus is what you've been looking for. And for those of us who have already stepped across the line of faith and already made this discovery, if you will, can I remind you again that Jesus is who we're looking forward to? That freedom from guilt that still creeps up on us even once we meet Christ, Jesus is the solution for that. Not trying to pray extra this week, not trying to serve extra this week, but resting in Christ. That is the solution to silence that nagging voice of guilt and condemnation. The fear you have about your job, about your finances, about coming economic turmoil, whatever's going on with Russia, whatever is anything in the news, Jesus is our hope. He is our only hope that is beyond this world, that is not anchored in this world, and therefore cannot be shaken by this world. He is the Messiah that they were looking for and we were looking for. Now, let's drill down further on the fact that he has this kind of messianic authority to do things like change names. Look back at verse 42. What this implies to us is that Jesus doesn't simply recognize faces, but he knows hearts thoroughly. 
And he not only sees into them, but he transforms them from the inside out. Who else can do that? Nobody I know. I mean, we can have a lot of work done on ourselves, on our personalities, on different habits and so on. But I mean, to really change our hearts. That's Jesus's business. And I love the, 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 the simplicity and the profundity of what he does here with this name. This word Cephas means rock in Aramaic. It's, uh, Aramaic. it's translated Peter in Greek. Some people say that this is indicative of his personality. We find out he's a handful as the gospel progresses. But it's not only predictive of what Peter would be called, but it's also declarative of how Jesus would transform this man and use him in the foundation of the church. So the next point here is, Jesus has the authority to change names and futures. Now, I can't look at that and not see the gospel. Because when you think about us, and let me speak figuratively here just for a moment, our name before we meet Jesus, what does it sound like? What kind of adjectives would be attached to us? Well, it's things like this, though this is not exhaustive. Lost, broken, helpless, alien, stranger, dead in our trespasses and sins, without hope and without God in the world. Now, that is not a popular message in our day. But that is what historic Christianity has always said about all people before we meet Christ. That's the name that's written over our hearts, if you will. But once we meet Jesus, and he changes our name, and he changes our future, what are some of the words and adjectives that could be used about us then? It's a very different list. Chosen. Beloved. Born again, new creation, part of a new family, seated in the heavenlies, heirs to unsearchable riches, friends of God, and the list goes on and on and on. So when we meet this Messiah who has the authority on his own discretion to change our names, it changes our future and it helps us in the present. Now, I don't know what kind of week you had rolling in here, but that is good news. And I don't know what kind of week we're going to have rolling out of here, but that is good news. Because who else has the authority to do this other than Jesus? No one. Let me give you one more piece of good news out of that same toolbox. Some of us need to be reminded of what our new name is, if you will. Because in recent days, in recent weeks, both in our thoughts and maybe in our actions, we have been operating like the old person. Operating under that old name. And the Lord is saying to us tonight so gently, hey, step away from that. You need to be who you are now, not who you once were. You need to live into the reality that I have for you now, 
not in the pigsty from which I rescued you. And we need to hear that. Now, some other of us, others of us might need to hear this because not everybody in this room comes with from the same self-confidence level, if you will. And there's plenty of people in here that would say, you know what, I just feel like I have nothing to offer. I just feel like the last person picked to be on Jesus' kickball team, I literally bring nothing. And you need to know that if he has the authority to change Peter's name and give him a completely different future, he can do that with you too. And if you will just bring him, to use a little metaphor here, the loaves and fishes that you have, he can feed multitudes from your life. You just got to be willing. Because it's not so much what you give him, it's his hand that does the miracle through it. He is the one with the authority. He is the one with the power to change names and futures, not us. We just need to show up and let him show up through our lives. There's one last thing I want to point out from this little section of text as well. Go back and take a look at this. Uh, look at verse 41. He says this. He said, he first found his own brother. And then in verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. So the next principle is something like this. That bringing people you know to Jesus has always been one of the primary ways that people meet him. There's just something that is fundamentally relational about the proclamation of the gospel. Now, does God use revival meetings? Does he use uh, 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 tracks? Does he use books? Does he use all kinds of, you know, sending balloons over into closed countries? You better believe it. One of the, the greatest examples from church history, it, this is a crazy story. I won't tell it all to you now, but you should go look up how Augustine became a Christian. That's crazy business of him hearing a child saying that he should take up and read the Bible, and he reads the Bible, and then he finds out maybe there wasn't actually a kid there, and next thing you know, the guy's met Jesus. So God works in all kinds of ways. But it seems very common that on the other end of you and I becoming a Christian is a person that invested in us relationally and shared the gospel with us relationally. So this is not the only way that people come in, but it is a primary way people come in. And what was it again here? It was a family member. He went and got his brother. And you know what? Part of the reason I am standing up here today is because members of my family took me to church. My parents met Jesus different times in their life. But they just were one of those families that said, you know what? We want to raise this child in church. And so from before I was born, I was there. And in the tra tradition that we were from, I was one of those that was like Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night late. We were there. If the doors were open, we were there. And I actually didn't even meet Jesus until I was 12. But all those years of sowing gospel seed into me and then watering that seed. And then one day, the Lord finally got a hold of me. My story bears this out. 
a member of my family loved me enough to bring me to Jesus. And in my specific story, there were also a lot of Sunday school teachers, VBS leaders, other people along the way that invested in me, and we have the privilege and responsibility to do the same thing as a church. So right now, down that hall, there are people that care enough to tell your little people about Jesus. And most of us in this room, in some way, contribute to that same ministry. You serve in it, or you give financially to help support it, you pray for it. We're all involved in this because we want those little people to meet Jesus just like these guys did. Now, beyond that, we all got members of our family that don't know Christ, right? We all got people that we at least need to be praying for. And here's the thing. You might say, Dustin, I've been witnessing to this guy for 20 years. He's my cousin twice removed or whatever. It just, it's not making a dent that you can see. But I've been around this game long enough to know that there are people that after 60 years of hardness to the gospel, when the whole world starts falling in on them, that is the life preserver that they reach out for. And people can legitimately be converted on their deathbed. It happens. So we don't know exactly what God might do with the gospel seed that we sow in those little people and in the people that we only see at Christmas and Thanksgiving. We just don't know. But I know this. We need to love our family members enough to try to get them to Jesus. And I'm so thankful that that's what happened in this passage. So what I hope is happening now is that in this moment, the Lord is giving us just a little flicker of inspiration to be able to say, no one is beyond the gospel. There's usually some kind of relational connection to get family members to Christ. And we need to pray and trust the Lord and be faithful to speak as we have opportunity. And who knows what might happen. Now let me widen that circle just a little bit further. Because beyond the family, there's also people in our other spheres of influence. People at work. People at school. People in kind of these third-party activities that we get into, whether it's soccer or scouts or whatever it is you and your family do, there are people there that we need to always be praying and thinking, how could I somehow hopefully get to get in the same position that we see in this passage where I'm bringing these people to Jesus? And let me tell you, in this church, we don't just see this as like a solo mission, right? This is, this is not like an army of one kind of thing. This is more like a SEAL Team 6 kind of thing for Jesus. That's how we look at it here. That you get them connected to other people who know Jesus. Okay, so you may not get all the credit for bringing them in. That's all right. You're not going to care in heaven anyway. But you're going to care if that person's there. And we want all of our people to get connected to Jesus as best we can and as much as we are able to do so. So leverage your community group. Get me and the other pastors involved, whatever it takes. But let's pray for and bring our people, whoever they are, 
to Christ as best we can. Now, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And this is important because what he's saying here is essentially what we just learned up here before, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Christ. This is who the whole Old Testament has been pointing to. When he says Moses in the law and the prophets, that's a shorthand for saying the whole book. This is about him. And then I love the Bible because it keeps it real. It does not say, and there was great rejoicing, and the people fell down in holy awe. It says in verse 46, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Now, this is one of those things that's somewhat debated on exactly what is happening here. We, we don't know for sure what the beef was with Nazareth. There are different theories. But what most people can seem to agree is it was a looked-down-upon little hamlet kind of place. It was also not prophetically significant in any way. It could be why he said this. Also could be some, like, intra-city rivalry here. I don't know about you, but small-town guy here. The, the football team of the town five miles away, we were always like, you know. It could be some of that going on here. We don't know. But what we do know is he wasn't a fan, and Philip said, come and check it out for yourself. And watch what happened when he does. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now, again, this one is significantly debated. But here's what we know for sure. I won't give you all the possible theories. Here's what we know for sure. Jesus saw that this guy was for real. He saw that he was legitimately coming to examine the claims that were being made about him for himself. It's also possible, based on what we see here in verse 48, that he was kind of like uh, Simeon and Anna. In the earlier part when, when, when Jesus was born, that they, he'd been looking for God, so to speak. It's very possible that that's what's happened. It's also possible that what is being alluded to here is Genesis 27, 35, where he's talking about Jacob, and he's talking about how Jacob was a trickster and known for his trickery and deviousness, and he's possibly emphasizing here there's no deceit in this guy. One person even translates it as like, in him there is no Jacob. And he's saying this guy is here for real. But no matter what is true there, we look at verse 48 to see what is there. Look at this. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Nathaniel, I'd be like, what? <laughs> what? But when you start to put the pieces together, it starts to make sense. He's the Messiah. They're saying he's the Messiah. He's just changing strangers' names 
And now he says, I know something about you that only you and I know. And that's the next principle. Jesus sees and knows things that only we know. That is a divine attribute. $3 word for it, you can call it omniscience. He knows everything. And what we need to lay on to here, I think, this, I think this truth helps us in a couple of different ways. I think there's actually an accountability side to this and an encouragement side of this. So let's look at both sides of this coin. The accountability side is that whatever thing we think we are doing in secret, Jesus knows. So we are never truly alone. And that provides some accountability. So let's couple that back to what we talked about just a little bit ago. That, that some of us recently, maybe even today, have been dabbling in or can be ensnared by things that are from where we came from and not where we are. And the fact that Jesus knows about it, that's actually a good thing. Now, how is that a good thing? Because he doesn't want you to walk in the darkness. You're no longer a child of the dark. You're a child of the light. So whatever has been going on in the background, he wants you to bring that darkness out into the light so that you can be forgiven, so that you can be healed, and you can be helped. And you can get on with your life and his life being lived through you for kingdom impact. And whatever's been going on in the shadows, it's not who you are. It's not really what you want. And he knows about it. So let that provide some accountability and you and he settle that individually. And if you need to get some other people involved and get some help and, and, and walk out of this with other brothers and sisters, hey, this is a church where we do that. We do not motivate with shame and guilt. And we let truths like this help us move forward. And like I said before, I'll say again, if we can help you as pastors, we want to do it. That's why we got into this, is to help people on their spiritual journey with Jesus. So let's let that accountability have its effect, and let's grow in response to it. Now, the encouraging side of this, that is encouraging in its own way, though it might not feel like it initially. The encur other encouraging side of this is Jesus knows about your private pain. Whatever it is that you're having to carry or at least you feel like you have to carry, in the darkness, nobody else knows about that burden, that struggle, Jesus knows. He knows the heaviness of it. He knows the difficulty of it. The Bible says that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but instead we have one who has been tempted in every way yet without sin. So whatever you feel like nobody knows, Jesus knows. That should bring some comfort to you tonight, whatever it is that you're struggling with. Whatever weight that you carry, Jesus would love to carry it with you. So let me ask this question here. How do you need that principle applied in your situation? Is it the first encouragement, the accountability version? Is it the second or maybe it's both. Wherever you need it, let's 
listen to the Spirit as he applies this text to our lives, and let's see what only God can do in response. Now, one more thing I want us to see from this passage. Look back in verse 49. Nathanael answered him. So Jesus has played a little omniscient gotcha on him here. And he says in response, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. So he gets it right. You were the king of Israel. So he's double high five. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? So it's a question like, so you jumped on the train because of that? And then listen to this. I love this. You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, pay attention to that. That phrase is going to come up a lot throughout the Gospels. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So let me give you this succinctly, kind of in layman's terms as a principle. Jesus is essentially saying to Nathaniel and to us, I am the prophesied Son of God, the Son of Man, the King of Israel, and you ain't seen nothing yet. That's what Jesus is saying right here. And he said, you turned and followed me based on this. Just stick around. It's going to be amazing. And so on the one hand, I think he's kind of saying that to all of us about the gospel of John, isn't he? You think this first chapter is great? You come back. Because it's going to be page after page after page of the revelation of the amazingness of the Son of Man. In addition to that, what he's saying right here, to be honest, this is one of those things where I've looked at five commentaries and got five different answers. On what is it that he means that heaven will be opened and angels will be ascending and descending. Here's where people kind of seem to converge. There's definitely something going on here, it seems, with the notion of the story of Jacob's ladder, if you want to call it that, from the Old Testament, Genesis 28. Jacob has this dream. He sees this ladder, angels coming up and down. It's possible some people see that as a connection to what he just said up here about there's no, no Jacob in this guy, and now here's what's going on. There's, there's, it's very likely there's a connection there. But then beyond that, what else do we know is true from this? There's now going to be unfettered access, no tabernacle, no temple, because of Jesus. We're going to have direct access to God through Christ. And then there was another one. Well, I'll just let this one speak for itself. This is from the Preach the Word commentary, and I like the way they said it. They said, the finest Greek scholars, from J.H. Bernard to C.K. Barrett, say that this means Jesus is the latter. What a tremendous truth. The latter is Christ. Nathaniel, you've not seen anything. As you enter into the fullness of your relationship with me, and as your spiritual vision is broadened, you're going to see swarming angels and hear the rustle of their wings as they move on that ladder between heaven and earth for you. And this is what actually happens on behalf of believers today. We need to hold on to this. 
and understand it and believe it to the point that we can almost hear the rustle of their wings. Jesus' words bring into our lives the stunning reality that was Jacob's. God is often the closest when he seems the furthest away. So I think that there's something going on here we need to pay attention to. That Jesus is the ladder. That he gives us unfettered access to God. And if we will follow him and have our minds renewed day by day by the transforming truth of Scripture, we will see wonderful and marvelous and glorious things in our lives, in the lives of our families, and in the lives of anyone who will put their faith and trust in Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the King of of Israel. He sees what no one else sees. He knows what no one else knows. And he says to us tonight, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, friends, where do you most need Jesus' help tonight? He's ready to give it. Where do you most marvel at Jesus tonight? He's happy to hear it. Where do you most need to be changed from the inside out or reminded of your new name? Jesus is more than glad to take the gospel there. Let's go before him now and pray. And let's ask for what only God can do. In this time, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are thankful for this passage, for the whole buffet of good news that is here for us in this text. We pray that we would feast upon it, that we'd be changed and helped by it, and that you would remind us of the greatness of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' mighty name.